The Tom Woods Show, episode 1293. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, my away carry-on is everything I look for in a suitcase. It's lightweight, strong. It's got a really smooth glide through the airport. It's got a built-in combination lock a compression system for overpackers like me, and a laundry bag to boot. Get $20 off a suitcase when you go to awaytravel.com slash woods and use promo code woods during checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Scott Adams is with us today. He's, of course, the creator of the Dilbert comic strip. He's the author of several nonfiction works of satire, commentary, and business. We're going to be talking about his book, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, just out in paperback. You can find his blog at Dilbert.com and his book I will link to at TomWoods.com slash 1293. Scott, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Win Bigley, and right at the beginning, you make clear that you are rich, you don't need any more money, and you say that you have what you might call FU money. So it doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter if they attack you or isolate you or try to destroy you. You have a, a fortress that sustains you. The thing is, most people don't. And I wonder if you can comment on what's happened to the point where a lot of Americans, I think decent, well-meaning people, feel like they don't dare speak their minds because whatever they do say will be blown up and magnified by a hundred times. Their motives will be questioned and maybe their livelihoods destroyed. Yeah, the whole uh, notion of freedom of speech seems to have morphed because of, you know, the just the changing environment. So I would argue that there are only a few people in this country who have anything like a real freedom of speech because the social implications of simply disagreeing with somebody, even if you have a legitimate moral disagreement, it isn't enough anymore. Because if somebody's on the other side, they're going to boycott you. They're going to not hire you. They're you know not going to be your friend. So there are very few people, and I'm one of them, who at great personal expense, and it does it is very expensive. Probably it cut my income by about thirty or forty percent. But I'm willing to do that because I'd rather I'd rather have freedom of speech. Well, no kidding. Now, nevertheless, we appreciate the sacrifice of somebody like you who just speaks his mind, regardless of the cost. You know, I'm thinking of the case of, you remember the old show All in the Family? Norman Lear portrays Archie Bunker in a way that's almost a caricature of a typical, let's say, bigoted white guy. But yet, even Norman Lear, when all was said and done, you got the sense that he believed Archie really had a good heart. Underneath all of it, when push came to shove, he had a good heart. Whereas today, even if you took somebody a million miles from Archie Bunker, if he's a little bit to the right, you get the sense that there's no way Hollywood or anybody else would ever portray him like that. Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to what people are saying in terms of characterizing it as, you know, the left thinks that the right is evil, the right thinks that the left is stupid. And, of course, all of those gross generalizations end up being unhelpful because we've reached the point where we think it's okay to characterize any group by its worst 1%. And, of course, that's really not being an adult in the conversation. You point out in the book that, uh, of course, a lot of people were using Hitler analogies leading up to the election. And you said that early on, Trump and Pence handled that rather deftly by 
let's say, scaling back some of the rhetoric and some of the policy proposals. But since then, since you wrote that, what would you say about that today? Because I still hear Hitler language all over the place. Well, it's interesting that you would ask me now, because something is interesting just in the last few weeks. If you go back, uh, my timelines are all compressed these days, so it's, it's hard to remember how long ago anything was in the age of Trump. But just a few weeks ago, the big headline was, why is it that Trump keeps uh, insulting black women? And they gave three examples of, of uh, African-American women who had been in his crosshairs. Now, it only took about a week before he was tweeting in praise of Ron Gillum, an African-American man, and saying that he was uh, a great power for the future with nothing negative. Uh, he did a similar compliment on Twitter with Stacey Abrams, again, complimenting her without any reservations in his, his tweet. He also worked uh, and was giving full endorsement to the prison reform efforts, which, of course, uh, have a disproportionate effect on the African-American community. And this Trump is a racist stories sort of just dissolved. Now, part of that also was the caravan, because the caravan uh, makes his claim that there's a problem with immigration, you know, separate from any kind of racial considerations. That seems somewhat visually evident to people because they're watching people climbing over the fences, etc. So he's had this sensationally good week in sort of reversing that impression. And it really drove it right out of the headlines. So the headlines just sort of stopped saying that and started talking about other things for a while. The subtitle of your book, of course, is very provocative, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. Now, let's imagine a scenario in which I'm both persuasive and I have the facts on my side. Is your thesis that even if I have the facts on my side, knowledge of how to persuade might nevertheless encourage me to argue in a way that doesn't necessarily draw on my bank of facts so much? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. If you had a choice and, and your goal is to persuade, and let's say that you're persuading for a moral purpose. Let's say you're trying to make the world better, safer, you know, fairer in some way. But the only way to get there is to convince people to your side. You can do it with facts, which won't work, and therefore you will not achieve your moral destination. Or you can bend the truth a little bit. You can use a little hyperbole. You can leave things out. You could exaggerate. You could you know, underplay the costs of things. And then you get a good moral outcome. Now somebody's going to ask, wait, is that, do the ends justify the means? Which is always a fair question, but it's asked in an unfair way. A fair way to ask that same question, do the ends justify the means, is to take out the uh, the answer from the question, which is what the question tries to do. It tries to give you the answer at the same time it's asking the question. If you ask that objectively, you'd say, do the costs outweigh the benefits? And now all you've done is said it's just like every decision that you make on any topic everywhere, which is you look at all the costs, you look at all the benefits, and you pick the one that has the best benefit-to-cost ratio. So there's nothing unique about using hyperbole versus the facts. You would weigh it the same way. Is it a big enough gain that it makes sense that you would, you'd fudge things a little bit on the start? One of the points you make also is that people seem to value and appreciate certainty over uncertainty. 
and they appreciate people who appear to be in command, even appear to be in command of the facts, whether or not they, they actually are, which I think is why even in an academic debate, forget about politics, in an academic debate, you got two scholars up on stage. Most audience members are not in a position to adjudicate that debate. But if one of them is standing up straight and looks in firm command and speaks very well, they'll almost all consider that person to be the winner. <laughs> now, does that mean there's something wrong with democracy itself? Well, it depends what you think democracy was supposed to be doing. You know, what is its real purpose? I would argue that democracy is a really good system, again, compared to other systems, not in some absolute sense because it has its flaws. But the main purpose of democracy is to build a system that's credible because the the citizens feel they can change it, they feel their vote matters, etc. So in terms of building a cohesive society, it's by far the best system anybody's come up with. But in terms of making good decisions, it's completely useless because the masses do not make good decisions. They're not experts on any of the topics. They can't really tell who is the expert. I mean, they, they really don't even know who has the right answer. So they're not even capable of picking people who are likely to pick the right experts. Yeah, so we're several layer levels away from any kind of a sensible, rational process. But the good news is we've got a system where you can usually test things small. And if you make mistakes, you can correct. And that process works really well in, in science and engineering and in everything else. If you can do a small test, see what it looks like, see how it worked in another country, see how it worked in one state, see how it worked in the past, that it can at least inform you toward uh, making the biggest mistakes again over time. You, we still make a lot of mistakes. I just can't get over, though, that in a setting, let's say, of I hate to use academics as an example, given what the atmosphere at universities is like. So let's just imagine as the universities were coming into existence when there really was a commitment to some kind of debate and disputation. If somebody were to raise a complicated question and one debater were to say, you know, you raise a complicated, difficult question that would require serious thought. And rather than just give you an answer off the top of my head, I'm going to reflect on, well, that person would be killed and destroyed. That would be the biggest gaffe of the century. We'd, we'd never hear from this person again. So you have to come back with some kind of sledgehammer response, no matter what the question is. And man, was Trump the champion of that. Yeah, he was He was not just good in terms of the energy and the, the sledgehammer, as you say, but the way he does it uses a lot more art than other people. So in other words, he he's very good at sticking with visual persuasion. You know, if there's a, a mental picture or an actual picture, it's strong. <clears throat> so thinking about the wall is a, a visual thing. Looking at the caravan, that's visual. So he does stay with visual when he can. He also uses fear very well. So, you know, fear of uh, immigration, fear of crime, fear of ISIS, and that sort of thing. Now, both sides, of course, use fear. The anti-Trumpers use fear of Trump. So they're using the same technique. They're just using a, a different focus for it. Um, and yeah, he was he's the best we've ever seen in terms of uh, controlling our attention and putting it where he wants it. Now, let's assume Hillary had been flexible enough in her own personal style to be able to adapt to what I'm sure you'll you'll agree was an unprecedented situation facing Donald Trump. What should she have been doing in response to his method of campaigning and debating? Well, you could argue that she did 
everything she needed to do persuasion-wise, but perhaps she didn't campaign right. So there might have been a disadvantage in what state she went to and how much energy she put into them. Some of that might have been health-related because in the, in the closing months, that's when she collapsed and there may have been a little pullback on for health reasons. But she did get three million more, whatever the number is. She got she got a lot more votes. So you could argue that she did what she needed to do. And I would say, as I talk about in Win Bigley, she was terrible at persuasion for the first part of the, the campaign. But around the summer of twenty sixteen, she started using the word dark. And I have speculated that that came from professionals. In other words, people who really understand persuasion. And it got adopted by all the pro-Clinton people in the media. And as soon as the Republican convention was done, uh, almost in unison, all the pundits were saying, that's a dark vision he's got there. That's a dark idea. He's bringing the country to a dark, dark place. Now, if you're not a student of persuasion, and you hear that word dark, you say to yourself, that doesn't sound very powerful. That doesn't sound as good as calling somebody Hitler or you know, whatever you could imagine or stronger words. But if you do study persuasion, you realize that this is a weaponized word and probably stronger than just about anything you've ever seen in politics in terms of persuasion. Because what it does is it's a, a capture mechanism for every negative thought you have about the president. It just concentrated everything into this word. It's like, yeah, it's a dark vision. It's dark in this way. It's dark in that way. It's dark in 10 different ways that I can think about. And it's a it's a standard hypnosis technique and persuasion technique that you want to give somebody a direction to persuade. In other words, a direction to think, but not being too specific. So if you said, if he gets elected, the economy will go down 5%, that's bad persuasion because it's too specific. But if you say, this is a dark vision, then people will bring whatever preconceived biases they have and they will populate that word with it. It's like, yeah, I'm worried about racism. That's dark. I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about nuclear war. It's, it's all dark. So when she started doing that, she was demonstrating a very high level of persuasive power. And I would argue it was so strong that it, it triggered what I call, what what lots of people call, Trump derangement syndrome. And that there was, in a literal medical sense, there was a mass hysteria that had uh, health implications. People seeking help, seeking therapists, acting out, being far more worried, more stressed than the situation called for. And I think all of that came out of uh, Clinton's persuasion that she created this giant, uh, I would say, a mass hysteria bomb that was supposed to be diffused the day after the election when she was supposed to win. If she had won, nobody would even care about Trump You know, 24 hours later. But the fact that he won allowed this huge psychological bomb that she had created to be not detonated and not diffused. So we're all just... You know, half of the country is sitting on this bomb saying it's going to go off any minute now. Everybody smart told me it's here. I know I'm sitting on a bomb, but it is mass hysteria. I think the mass hysteria in large part – now maybe this is my filter that I'm looking through the world through. This is my kind of bias, but I think the filter is entirely – and I'm not a partisan here because I, I don't much care for either party. Um, I'm a libertarian, but the Democrats seem to be responsible for stoking fears – 
about things that weren't there. There's no chance Trump is going to throw LGBT people in concentration camps. There's no chance that that was going to – how tone deaf can you be? The guy was basically more liberal on that issue than Bill Clinton was as recently as the 1990s. And yet we got crazy stuff like this. Now, here's what I want to ask you. For many years, political consultants have charged campaigns heaven knows how much per month to advise them and to conduct focus groups and things of that sort. And yet Trump seems to have disdained all of that. I mean, if he had those people on board, he wasn't paying them a whole lot. And he was doing a lot of what he did off the cuff without consulting anybody. And he won. And all these high-paying political consultants couldn't win. Does this say something about the political consultant industry? Were they missing something? Well, it says more about him. The, he is a unique character who can ignore consultants because he, he simply has more skill than they do. And so him ignoring their advice was smart. He knew it. He acted that way, and, and it worked. I would compare him to, let's say, for those who follow tennis, Roger Federer considered by many the greatest tennis player of all time. And for most of his professional career, he didn't have a coach. He was he was very alone in that. He, he didn't have a coach. And I would argue that if you're as good as Roger Federer, having a coach might even just slow you down. And if you were as talented as President Trump in persuasion, having a bunch of experts telling you you're doing it wrong might not be the help that you imagine it could be in his specific case. So my guess is the political, and I guess the advisors will like to hear this. I imagine they're also they're they're very valuable. I would imagine that we may never see anybody win a presidential campaign without them in the future. But this is just a special case where you have somebody who comes in with more talent than the advisors. You're just not going to see that often. Maybe I'm asking you the same question in multiple ways because we are dealing with this unique phenomenon. But I just can't help asking. Why nothing destroyed him, especially things we were all told were sure to destroy him, his comments about John McCain. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And the New York Post would put on the front page that it's over, he's toast, that's it, he's finished. And every single time they were wrong. What was it about him that allowed him to overcome every single one of these that I'm sure would have destroyed, you know, other candidates? Mm. Well, it's probably a number of things. Um, One of them is that he inoculated the public early on. He said in these exact words, I'm no angel. And I think everybody understood whether he said it or not, that there would be things about his personal life that would come out and that they would be things that we might not love, but he wasn't running as a role model. So one of the smartest things he did, he said, I'm against political correctness. I'm no angel. You need a tough person to come in and fix some stuff. So when something happened that proved he was no angel, it didn't violate what he told us. And when he acted tough, we believed it. When he said he didn't like political correctness in those words, he said those exact words, uh, and then he acted exactly that way, people, I think the, his supporters saw that as authenticity and something that was a weird form of honesty. You know, even if he, if, even if he fails 10 fact-checking claims per day, they're usually directionally accurate. You know, in other words, he's, He's persuading in the right direction. So if he says the economy is going to go up 5% and it only goes up 4%, that's still better than we've been doing. So, you know, on the fact checking, he's usually directionally accurate. And then on authenticity, we've never seen anything like it. He's probably the most authentic, transparent 
personality we've ever seen, if you don't count you know, the technicalities of the fact-checking, which he ignores, uh, he ignores like nobody has ever ignored. There's a section in your book on confirmation bias, and if we're being honest, we probably all have this to some degree, that we, we look for things and we interpret things in ways that confirm us in our existing beliefs. So I wonder, how often is it really, and under what circumstances is it, that we're ever really persuaded of something strictly on the merits, so-called? Um, I think the only time that can happen is in the rare situation where the person being persuaded did not have any kind of an emotional investment in the topic. So if, for example, I go to my financial advisor and I'm thinking I should put my money in bonds, but I don't have any emotional connection to it, and the advisor says, no, this would be a good time to be in index funds or whatever, um, I could probably be persuaded just by the facts. Oh, statistically and diversification-wise, okay, good argument. But as soon as you add even a little bit of emotion, which describes every topic in politics, um, it's nearly impossible to move people. And when they do move and they say it's because of the facts, I'm very skeptical because I think they may have moved for irrational reasons and then described it with rational reasons because they wanted to defend their move. So I'm a trained hypnotist. I learned to be a hypnotist in my 20s. And one of the things you learn when you're becoming a hypnotist is that the normal way that people think the world works is upside down. And the normal way people think is that, well, people are rational people 90% of the time, but let's say 10% of the time we get a little crazy. That's the normal way people see the world. The way hypnotists see it, and indeed the only way you can become a hypnotist is to understand this fact, is that we are irrational 90% of the time, and only 10% of the time do we use the facts. And that's when we don't have any any emotional connection to the, the topic. So that's my view of the world is we're uh, irrational most of the time. And even if we use, even if we state a rational reason for changing our mind, it might not actually be the reason. Boy, that's, uh, do you ever find this depressing? No, it's quite the opposite because once you understand how the world is wired and that it's nearly the exact opposite of what you've been taught and, and what you imagined, a lot of your frustration goes away because a lot of us are spending huge amounts of our mental and physical energy and our health trying to change people's minds that can't be changed. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, you're talking to one of them. <laughs> yeah. So once you realize that that's not a thing, it's not something you could do, it's not something I could do, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm a highly trained. I've been studying persuasion in all its forms for decades. I'm a professional communicator. So, you know, if you were to rank people from, you know, one to 10, I'm probably a, a 9.5 on skill level for persuasion. But even for me, unless you put me in a room with somebody and give me all the time I need, and you know, access to the internet so I can show my facts and everything. I don't even have a chance. You know, I, it's almost impossible for me to change somebody's mind. Let's say on Twitter or something like that. You need an extended exposure, and you need somebody who's not emotionally connected, or at least they're emotionally neutral. And then you've got a chance for two percent of them over time. Now, I've argued that uh, that President Trump is the best persuader we've ever seen. But he probably only moved 2% of the country. 
because most people were going to vote the way they were going to vote no matter what. And that's all it takes because our elections tend to be close. So if you can move 2%, that's a miracle. And then what he did was, of course, he has consolidated support within his party to very high levels historically. And that, I would say, is probably persuasion. But these are people who are leaning in that direction heavily, and he was just giving them a little nudge. That's that's the easy persuasion, the people who are already on your side. Hey, guys, just a quick message for you. Last month, you know, was the Contra Cruise, which is the cruise Bob Murphy and I host every year. It was a great time as always, but I brought my away carry-on and I showed it off to people. All the people there remember that I was bringing all our equipment around in the away carry-on and I was showing them how effortlessly I am able to glide it across the floor and it spins around and it's lightweight and durable and all the qualities that I tell you about. It's got the built-in laundry bag, the TSA-approved combination lock, all these things that make me the king of the airport, all the folks on the Contra Cruise got to see. You can choose from a variety of colors and four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large. Comes with a lifetime warranty, a 100-day trial, and free shipping within the lower 48 states. And for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com woods and use promo code woods during checkout. That's $20 off a suitcase at awaytravel.com woods when you use promo code woods during checkout. Well, you've got an appendix in Win Bigly in which you go through several of what you consider to be Trump's mistakes. And we all have some trepidation talking about Trump's so-called mistakes. If we're speaking not morally or any other way, but purely strategically. If we're talking about his mistakes, it's hard because he did win after all. Like I asked Pat Buchanan about this. What would you do differently if you were Trump? And he said, well, maybe I'd scale back on the tweets and whatever. And he said, but on the other hand, I'm talking to Tom Woods and he's in the White House. <laughs> you know, so so, uh, so what would you, if he looked to you for advice, would you have any general advice? Yeah, um, I would look at his biggest uh, let's say his biggest weaknesses, which I would say are healthcare and race relations. And I would say it's fairly easy on, let's take race relations, to reverse the narrative. And as I said earlier uh, in this conversation, they, he did exactly that. And it had exactly the effect that it should have had, which is it erased racism from the headlines. So all he had to do was say some unambiguously positive things about some opponents, especially, who happen to be African-American, say some good things about women. He says nice things about Nancy Pelosi recently. And he can still stick to all of his criticisms, but as long as he's also saying, let's be honest, this person is really good at their job. I just don't agree with what they're doing, that you could really soften a lot of that stuff. So I think there's there's more he could do, but recently he's he's certainly made some uh, headway on that. On healthcare, for example, my view is that he's a little bit missing in action, meaning that sure I understand it's Congress's job, and I understand that probably nobody in the world is smart enough to figure out how to solve this problem, but it feels like there should be more direction. And if it were me, the direction would be trying to figure out how to remove regulations, how to how to boost the startups that will lower healthcare costs, of which there are a lot. There are startups in practically every area that could lower healthcare costs and a little government attention, not funding. The government doesn't have to fund them, but some attention in these areas would probably go a long way to uh, 
to make something happen. Then, then of course, immigration is just a, it's really more of a political thing than, uh, than anything else, because it would be completely solvable if politics didn't exist. If nobody had a political side, I'm pretty sure we could solve it in a weekend. So it's only politics that keeps us away from that. But President Trump, as I say, he's highly persuasive and he's he's pushing on one one sort of type of solution. And I would guess that uh, if he stays in office long enough, he will get his way or most of it. But it just does seem like we could have gotten there sooner. So I would I would consider myself a critic on immigration in terms of the president. All right, a couple of quick things that have happened since your book, When Bigley, was published. First, how did you evaluate the the big national confrontation with Elizabeth Warren when her uh, DNA results came out? You know, sometimes it's just for entertainment. One of the things that this president understands that no one has quite understood in the same way is that when he brought reality TV, and I like to call it theater, to politics, he did it productively. In other words, he found a way to make politics more powerful or at least more effective for him by adding the the theater to it, by being entertaining. And the Elizabeth Warren stuff is terribly entertaining for his base. So, you know, forget about the facts, blah, 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 nobody cares. Uh, but it was terribly entertaining and not of any real consequence to anything. But I think she probably did shoot herself in the foot Um when she did the DNA test and you know, the way she handled it was inelegant and probably will come back and bite her. Then secondly, what about the midterm elections? I mean, I I know we can go into what historically the results have been for the the party that's out of power and all that, but nevertheless, it's, it is quite a few House seats. What did you make of this? Is Trump floundering? Is he not as, as successful at this as we thought? Are the media attacks too overwhelming? What was your analysis? Um, I often quote Mark Twain, who said, I'm paraphrasing here, that people are not good at knowing the difference between good news and bad news. We're, we're actually so unaware that we really can't even tell good news from bad news. And I think the midterm might turn out to, to be one of those situations. If you consider the biggest, let's say one of the three biggest fears that people had about a President Trump, you know, one of them was that he would be a crazy dictator who would steal all the power and make all the branches of government obsolete and, and he would never leave office, and et cetera. And then we have this midterm election and the midterm election doesn't go his way. His, his power base with the Republicans is cut in half. And what is his reaction to it? His reaction is, congratulations, good job. You, you fought hard. <laughs> and and maybe Nancy Pelosi should be your leader because she earned it. Now, that is not a dictator. And anybody who watched that, there's just – you'd really have to try really hard to construe that in any way that agreed with whatever your past bias was, that he was a dictator and, and you know he wasn't going to follow the rules. He clearly is, and it's no big deal, and it happened – you know, the way American politics usually happens, which is fairly messy, but it all worked just the way it was supposed to work. Now, this, the second part that's the fun part is that in the first two years, I think the president did most of the stuff that you can do somewhat by yourself or with a with a Republican Congress. 
And you know, I'm talking about international things, uh, trade deals, and dealing with North Korea, and you know, talking up the economy and doing your executive orders and stuff like that. But for the remaining things, the things that the country needs most, our highest priorities, healthcare, immigration, for example, those absolutely will require a bipartisan effort of some sort. And this president is uniquely bipartisan because I don't think that he would give up an opportunity to solve a problem just because it, you know, it looked like it was biased in one political way or the other. I think he would take the solution over the politics if he could get it. So my prediction is that he will work productively with Congress and the odds of getting something good done on immigration, infrastructure, uh, healthcare are probably higher now than they would have been if he had kept a Republican Congress and you know, there were a few defectors like last time. All right. That's an interesting analysis. OK. I wasn't expecting that. Well, l- let me let me ask you one final thing about persuasion that maybe we can leave with a bit of hope for the traditional view here that let's say there's somebody who is very difficult to persuade because this person is deeply, deeply committed to improving the welfare of the poor. Now, let's then stipulate for the sake of argument, I'm not implicating you in this, but let's stipulate that libertarians are right and that it would actually help the poor if the government were involved less. Let's say that. Let's, so if, if I were to go up to this person, let's say it's a member of my family, so I've got a deep emotional connection to the person, I know what that person's philosophical commitments are, and I can share that person's concerns and have empathy and then say, the thing is, I think we'd do even better for these people if we tried A, B, and C. Would you say that's a more hopeful approach than just throwing statistics at the person, just trying to go at what is that emotional core that's driving them? Or even there, am I being too optimistic? Um, I think you're being too optimistic. The trouble with facts is that people think they have their own facts. You know, look at climate change, for example. (laughs) Everybody is pretty sure they have their own set of facts and they're different from your facts. Um, So that, and that's true for any of the emotional issues. So in the case of, if you're trying to argue the libertarian uh, point, the best argument would be what I call the high ground maneuver, where you take it up to a level where it's hard for anybody to disagree. And in this case, I would say, you know, we really don't know what will work best. Why don't we try some small things that don't cost a lot, won't hurt anybody, and then see what works. So we could we could try my method in one place, one county, one city, and then track it for three years and see if that works. Now, you could use that for almost any topic. You could do it for gun control. You could do it for health care. Uh, immigration is tougher because, you know, we have one country and – and you know, one set of borders. But uh, for most things, you can do that. And that's the thing that people have a trouble arguing against, which is, hey, smart people. So the way I'd put it is there are smart people who agree with you. There are smart people who think there's another way. What we can all agree with is that we don't know. So is there a way to test as small so that you and I can both find out if it works? That's an argument that we'll go over even, even on – Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays with the folks. Nobody argues with that one. Well, maybe that's at least a place for folks to start because we are the, if not arguing, then let's say the debating type, uh, those who tune in for this this podcast. We can't help ourselves. Even if it's totally unproductive, we just, we just feel drawn to do it. We can't help uh, doing it. And then, of course, there are people who are uncommitted either way. I mean, there's that's the thing. There are people who could be listening in who haven't yet built up 
this resistance to hearing one side or the other who genuinely would like to hear two sides hash it out. Yeah, let me close with that. Suppose we do have some – let's say somebody who's 17 years old, barely even knows which end is up and is genuinely able to – let me ask you that. Is that person, do you think, genuinely able to weigh arguments on the merits or does that person even have commitments he may not be fully aware of? Well – I've often said, if you're talking about a 17-year-old in particular, I've often said that uh, the young people are our dumbest citizens. And I say that with love because I was once younger and dumber. And I don't think there's anybody who is older who thinks that they got less wise over time. (laughs) So the the first thing you have to understand is that there's probably no 17-year-old who has a political opinion that anybody over 40 should even listen to a little bit. Now, they might have a political preference and some emotions, and those those are variables that you have to consider. But in terms of how to solve a problem, uh, you could ignore anybody who's 17. And on that note, <laughs> I'll say uh, I appreciate your time, Scott Adams. And if I didn't tell you that my 15-year-old daughter, Regina, thinks you're great, she'd be very unhappy with me. So I've officially done that. The book is Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. I'm linking to it at tomwoods.com slash 1293. Do you have a website? I know you've been making YouTube videos. How about I link to, the, to your channel? Uh, yeah, you can find me at, at Scott Adams Says on Twitter, and that'll take you to my periscopes as well. And let me say that your daughter is obviously the exception because what you tell me of her, she sounds brilliant. So I would listen to everything she says. Uh, all, right, all right, that's great. That's Well, we, we definitely agree there. Uh, no persuasion necessary. Thanks so much uh, for your time and continued good luck. All right, thank you. All right, folks, that is our episode for today. Remember, I put up a little training thing because I sometimes get, I get a lot of questions about libertarianism, but I sometimes get questions about how do I do podcasting or what equipment do I use or how do I send out my emails or what service do I use for X, Y, or Z? Or in some cases, how did I create the courses for Liberty Classroom or the Ron Paul curriculum? How did I actually do it? And how can other people produce courses and what platform should they use and whatever? So I have put together for you a free package of stuff that should pretty much answer all your questions. It's a report plus a step-by-step video series. You can get that for nothing over at tomwoods.com slash courses. So if you've ever had any interest in creating your own online course, and I'll even show you how you can create a course where the entire course is no more than 10 minutes long and you can still sell that course. So all that stuff will be explained at tomwoods.com slash courses. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.